Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. This should be the 75th episode of the podcast, and alongside our shortcast that now has around 25 episodes, I make that 100 episodes of metabolic content available for you to listen to. So if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe or follow us to never miss an episode, and why not click like or even leave a review? but not before listening to this latest episode on cellular and computational models in methylmalonic aciduria. Hello there. Now, although this is a podcast about all aspects of inherited metabolic disease, it does seem that we've found ourselves talking a lot about the organic acidemias in the last few episodes, and this one is no different. I'm delighted to host two guests today, both of whom contributed to the paper, Cellular and Computational Models Reveal Environmental and Metabolic Interactions in MMUT Type Methylmalonic Aciduria. And they are Dr. Sean Froze of the Division of Metabolism and Children's Research Centre at the University of Zurich, and Dr. Charlotte Ramon of ETH Zurich, who was working with the Children's Hospital at the time of this study. Charlotte and Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. So I've mentioned it in the last few months, we've talked a lot about these. And it was it was not that long ago I spoke with Chuck Venditti about genomic therapies in MMA, and he gave a great overview of the condition. So I don't want to revisit that. However, your work looks at why the disease leads to the complications that it does and why these can be inconsistent between patients. So I wondered if you could take me through the different hypotheses around how methylmalonic aciduria leads to its clinical phenotype? I, I guess I can try. I, first of all, I want, I want to say fair enough because I, I listened to Chuck Venditti's podcast and I think there's no chance that we could do better than him. And he really knows the disease and it was a super cool podcast. I mean, his group is pioneering in this disease. And I think a lot of what we do is also building off of what, what he has found and what he has shown. But if we come back to these two different hypotheses, then there's sort of the substrate accumulation or toxic metabolite hypothesis, or else there's the product depletion or energy depletion hypothesis. And, and these can really easily be boiled down to saying this MMUT or MUT, as we would usually call it, enzyme is missing. And the problems or the symptoms um, that come in this disease are either due to the fact that the substrate, which it should normally convert, which is methylmalacoa, or any of its sort of derivatives, here's propionyl-CoA, so I guess your podcast listeners will know about that, or maybe 2-methylcitrate or propionic acid or methylmonic acid. These all accumulate in the disease, and these can be toxic and do terrible things. And so that's the toxic metabolite hypothesis. And on the other side is the product of the MMUT enzyme is succinyl-CoA, and this is actually a TCA cycle intermediate. And the lack of this TCA cycle intermediate, which is like an anapleurotic intermediate because it's feeding into the energy metabolism of the TCA, cycle. This can cause energy depletion or TCA cycle depletion. And this lack is what sort of causes loss of energy. And that might also be responsible for many of the signs or symptoms of the disease. And I think there are good reasons for both of these to play a role in the disease. So a really nice example for the toxic metabolite hypothesis is the production of ammonia in disease. So ammonia should be normally handled by the urea cycle, which is not very close metabolically to the MUT enzyme or, or MUT deficiency, but nevertheless, it does accumulate, and especially when the toxic metabolites accumulate. And this is because there's actually an inhibition of the NAGAS enzyme in the urea cycle caused by, uh, depending who you ask, propionyl-CoA itself or some post-translational modification of NAGAS, as Venditti's group showed. And therefore, the ammonia actually rises as 
the toxic metabolites rise, and this causes additional sequelae in the disease. So that's a toxic metabolite hypothesis. There are other good examples, but I think that's the nicest one. On the other side, there's this energy depletion hypothesis, um, and that's coming from the fact that a lot of the symptoms in MMA look a lot like primary mitochondrial disorders. And a good example of this is sort of the stroke-like lesions in the basal ganglia. So that's typical of MMA. It's typical of PA as well. And it's also typical of primary mitochondrial disorders. And that really seems to be due to the loss of mitochondrial function or the loss of energy production. And then there's this sort of intermediate where the toxic metabolites of MMA and PA, they actually go back and inhibit the TCA cycle itself or enzymes of the TCA cycle. So propionyl-CoA or 2-methylcitrate, they have been shown to inhibit TCA cycle enzymes. I think MMA has been shown to inhibit PDH. And so it's really difficult to piece out what is the contributor and what is secondary in this disease. Um, but we're, we tried to do that here and to some small extent maybe had some success. This is going to seem like I always plan these things because the podcast that's just come out was with Dr. Susan Jakowski and discussing her team's work on propionic acidemia. And she's talked about just, just that around the energy hypothesis. So if you want more on that, please listen to that podcast. So I think journal articles usually go some way over my head, some pass closer than others. I think this is one of the ones that was quite a long way away. You were exploring this toxic metabolite theory, I believe, notably the impact of environmental and genetic perturbations on metabolic outcomes. How does one go about that? Yeah, so I will uh, briefly explain how we reasoned here to study that. So the first idea was to use uh, really a model of the disease in contrast to many studies, which basically uh, put a lot of high concentration of toxic metabolites on cell and study the effects. We argue that this is not a true model of the disease in the sense that there is not really a, an enzyme deficiency. And when you do that, you already take a strong assumption. So the idea was to use fibroblasts, which do not have any activity in methylmalonyl-CoM mutase, so which are deficient in this enzyme but also taking isogenic models of the disease. So in contrast to patient fibroblasts, they don't have as much variability because the genetic background between the disease cell and the wild type cell is identical, except the enzyme we are interested in, or at least that was what we tried. So using CRISPR-Cas9, using whole genome sequencing, we verified that we didn't introduce too many uh, off-target mutations, which could influence uh, metabolism. So that was a sanity check we did. And then once we had the cell line model, we characterized them phenotypically in different media to see where we could see an effect of the disease specific for this deficiency. Because I think that was one of the important questions here. What can we see actually in fibroblasts? Because it's cell type that they had a lot at the kinder hospitals. There is a huge bank of hundreds of fibroblasts. And the idea was to see how much we can study with this type of cell line. And there are two hypotheses, and we don't really know why cells are sick with this disease. So we don't really know what is a phenotype. So it was really important to look at multiple phenotypes. For example, if you compare with cancer cell lines, we know what is a phenotype. We know that uh, cancer cells have increased proliferation. For uh, this disease, it's not exactly clear what is the consequence on cells itself. So the macro consequences on patients, we know them, but on cells, we don't know them. And so that's how we studied these interactions to better understand, to sort of orient our research and to go towards my hypothesis. The question you've asked there is, we wanted to see what we would see. So I guess the question is, what did you see when you had your specially made cell lines? Yeah, what we tried to do was to try to look at these sort of genetic and metabolic interactions, and, and neither of them are very easy to see. I think it's important 
to describe what we saw and what we didn't see. So one thing that we had expected to see was if we gave these cells high levels of either toxic metabolites or if we gave them high levels of precursor amino acids, here's branch chain amino acids, or if we forced the cells into, depending on the TCA cycle, and this we did by adding galactose, what we expected to see was disruptions of the cells or loss of cell viability or at least less proliferation. And this we didn't see. So actually doing any of those things didn't really affect the, the patient like cells any more than it did the healthy cells. And that was surprising to us, but nevertheless seems to be the case. So it doesn't seem to be that at, at the micro level or at the cellular level, these have a big impact. But rather what we did see was if we disrupted other genes, which were involved in sort of alternative pathways of propionylcholine metabolism, and here the, the case example is HIBCH, then if we disrupted that in the presence of also disruption of MMUT, then we actually had this loss of cell viability compared to cells that were either healthy or cells that were disrupted by HIPCH alone. And to us, what that suggested was that in the normal situation, you know, in terms of an individual cell, it can tolerate losing either just MUT or just HIPCH. But if you get rid of both of these sort of alternative pathways of propionylcholine degradation, then it really messes up the function and really strengthens um, the cellular phenotype at this level. So that was the detrimental genetic interaction that we saw. And then the second, I think, most important finding is that we saw a difference in cell viability in a glutamine-deprived medium which was not uh, part of our hypothesis uh, in the beginning of the work. So that would mean that glutamine is important for the cell, for the mutant cell, especially when it is deficient in methylmalonyl-CoA-mutase. So that would indicate that uh, anapterosis of the TCA cycle, for example, could be important, even though our work does not explicitly show it. That's where the modeling comes in to try to interpret these findings. So then... In the metabolic state or in the environmental interaction, then when we didn't have glutamine, the cells also did worse, suggesting that glutamine normally might be partially accounting for the loss of energy production. And when you take this away as well, um, then cells do worse. Do you not have um, raised glutamine in these patients just because when you've got disruption of the urea cycle, they not have elevated glutamine levels on a sort of more chronic basis? Yeah, at the whole body level, this is one of the complications of glutamine. So glutamine is one of those amino acids, which is involved in so many different metabolic pathways. If we directly extrapolated from our data and say, oh, wow, we should just give these patients glutamine and that should cure them. Of course, that's not a good idea, right? And as you say, they probably already have the high glutamine because glutamine is an ammonia sink basically in the body. So we're certainly not advocating to immediately give these patients glutamine or, or suggest that glutamine is a way to cure these. But what we might be suggesting eventually down the line is targeting that pathway. So the way that glutamine gets into the TCA cycle as a way to supplement these patients. And that goes along with other data that we're publishing elsewhere as well. And it's important, I think, also this, because glutamine is really part of the formulation of most medium that we are using in vitro to study the diseases. And I think it could have also an important consequence when you study also this disease with more complicated cell types like neurons. And you don't count to all these checks that we did. Maybe you should think about not having too much glutamine in the medium to be able to see a phenotype because if it's really complementing the disease, then you might not see anything or it might hide some potential effects. The other thing about this paper is it talks about computational 
modeling and that's a bit of a novelty to me does that mean we don't need to do experiments anymore you can just whack all into a computer and it'll tell you what you should be thinking or how, how does computational modeling contribute to your experimental work so um here uh, i use computational modeling really to uh, generate a hypothesis I think uh, modeling is very interesting when you compare your predictions to experiments and it's both interesting when results fit and also very interesting when results do not fit because uh, it means that your model is not accounting for the effect uh, that you're seeing and so maybe it's another effect that you're not accounting for and then you can generate other hypotheses and, and test them. So here I really used it in that way. I think I, I need to mention here that for inborn errors of metabolism, modeling has not been used that much because in contrast to cancer cells, again, where uh, computational modeling is already used, we have a phenotype of increased proliferation and the basic modeling methods, so flux balance analysis, is always trying to maximize growth. So it fits well with cells who are trying to maximize their growth, such as cancer cells. But when you look at inborn errors of metabolism, especially when there is no really a strong phenotype, you don't really know what to optimize. So it's a bit more complicated to uh, interpret the results of the modeling in that case. That's why here I use methods which do not always assume a maximal growth because we don't know if the fibroblasts are really trying to maximize their growth. Probably not. For example, here, it really helped me to, to interpret and try to find hypotheses of what would be the consequence of having less glutamine. It's with the model that I could derive this. And more, more importantly, when we try to find genetic uh, interactions with methamalonic coimutase to test the candidates, which shows them from the output of the modeling. So I try to predict which reactions and which genes would interact with mutase. And then we selected some of those, of course, at that time, we couldn't test all the candidates that I predicted because we did that through CRISPR-Cas9 and each clone takes a few months. But uh, that was basically uh, how we use modeling here. And from a very simple perspective, when you're talking about modeling, what do you actually mean? I mean, so very simply speaking, I think of models almost in terms of 3D models. And I know we do do computer modeling around protein structure and things. And in inborn errors, they talk about different gene errors resulting in different configurations of proteins that will have functional work. But you're talking about modeling more in terms of predicting pathways and then how what the levels of different metabolites will be. Is, is that what you're referring to? Yes. So I will try to explain the basics of constraint-based modeling in that case for metabolism. So the idea is that First of all, I was using genome scan metabolic models. So we try to model the whole metabolism of the cell. And the idea is that we have inputs. So the inputs for a body would be what you eat, all the nutrients that are in the medium for cells. And the output is what the cells do. So they generate energy and proteins and they grow. And so all of that is sort of the output. And in the middle, we have the metabolism. And you can Im imagine this method of modeling as a cascade. So we have flows of metabolites, which goes through the cascade. And what I was trying to do here is what happens if I, if I delete the flow of methylmalonate coimutase? How would the flow redistribute in the other streams that are available and how it will distribute in the metabolism, what would be the consequence. And is that something you can play with dynamically? Because you see these wonderful metabolic maps where everything comes off everything else. It's almost tempting to say, well, you could just draw a cross here and you'd suddenly see how that would 
propagate through this whole system. I presume it's a lot more complicated than that, but it strikes me that a child could play with it if you could do that with it. Yeah, I mean, at some point, probably it would be sufficiently good that you have apps which allow you to do that indeed, but there are really many different methods that can be used. And here we use the very basic ones, but you can go even more predictive with more data. For example, with transomics data, transcriptomics, uh, metabolomics, you can integrate this data in the models and have even better prediction in that case. Sounds like an exciting technology for the future then. Yes. Now, I mean, when I said a a child could play with it, I I meant me. Um, I'm I'm pretty basic. I I always try to bring general work back to the question of what it means for treating patients. And you suggest that some of the insights you've seen within this work may have an implication for therapy. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. So I think this work is both important for new insights for patients, but how to also find new insights with the next studies. Because as I mentioned, the implication of glutamine in the study of in vitro cell lines affected by the disease could be very important to have a better understanding of the disease, but also to find new therapies. Because if you don't see any effect when you're studying the disease, it's a, it's a problem, right? And then I think uh, here we've sort of found that anapleurosis of the TCA cycle is at least equally important as the toxic metabolite hypothesis. And the former has been a bit neglected in the literature because it's a bit more difficult to study in contrast to the toxic metabolite where you can dump a lot of these metabolites and see what happens basically. Here it's a bit more subtle. And so instead of thinking only about reducing substrate accumulation, you could think more about how to supplement what is missing downstream, right? So that's how it could have implication for therapy. Uh, but I think, of course, we're still a long way from clinics if we're talking about treating these patients. And nothing nothing that we did here would we think to directly apply to the clinics or, or to the patients. But we can think about what is making things worse or what is making things better for these patients. And so in the worst case, then we can talk about maybe glutamine depletion or a lack of energy into the TCA cycle that can be bad for these patients or, or loss of alternative energy sources that's certainly bad for these patients, as well as what hasn't really been discussed looked at is whether there are alternative genes which are contributing to how toxic these metabolites actually are. And that comes back to how does the body actually deal with propionyl-CoA? And if a patient or an affected individual has some sort of disrupting mutation in HIPCH, for example, then that could actually make the same amount of metabolites actually more toxic than they would otherwise be. So such a thing hasn't really been rigorously studied in MMA or PA or, or most inborn errors. Often it's, it's not really possible or very difficult to, but I think we can start looking at this maybe a little bit more rigorously and and to see like, are there other genetic interactions or other disruptions in, in genes which are actually making it worse? for these patients. So that's one thing. And the other is back to the energy and and how are we dealing with these patients or or how are we providing them with energy? And of course, energy has always been or is certainly at the forefront of clinicians' minds. When treating these patients, of course, they're always trying to keep the patient anabolic. That's really important. In acute situation, they're giving them IV glucose quite often, right? But how can we treat this more chronically? And And it could be that if we provide them with other anapleurotic sources, then in a long-term management, this might be maybe a cheap, easy, um, quite feasible way to put the patient in a better state. So I I think that we haven't identified exactly which place or which molecule is right for that, but I think we have identified that that this could be an important thing to think about for the patients. Excellent. And I think that's kind of bringing us to the end of what I wanted to talk to you about. Is there anything you wanted to add? I know, Sean, you've teased us about some other work you're doing there. What's coming next for your group? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, we're really excited about this work and this work actually really leads extremely well into another paper that we have published coming out in Nature Metabolism uh, probably this month, where we're also looking at a large collection of patients. I think Charlotte teased that we have a large number of patient fibroblasts in our biobank and we looked at a little over 200 of those to try to compare multi-omics and to see what is wrong with these patients and what is disrupted and and how can we diagnose them better. And I think that's a study that we're also quite proud of. And I think it would be maybe really interesting for those who like this paper or who are interested in Charlotte's paper as well. And is that diagnostics? I mean, we're in this big genomics era. What is the interface between transcriptomics or the work that you're doing and, and genomics? Because so frequently now we're getting genomics ahead of anything else. Yeah, that's right. And I think we're getting genomics ahead of everything else. And we're realizing that we can't do that well with genomics alone. So whole genome sequencing alone, even a quite a nicely curated cohort gives you maybe 30% or 50% if you're doing really well diagnostic rate. And so our question is, if we add more layers, so if we include transcriptomics, if we include proteomics, also some biochemistry, can we do better than that? And from our study, I think the suggestion is, yes, we can, because they can inform back on the genome. So in some cases, we just don't see the changes in the genome, but we can see the effects at the transcriptome of the proteome. In other cases, we can see the effects in the transcriptome, and then we can map that back to the genome. Um, so it actually informs the genome. So I, I think there's a few different reasons why we can do better. And I think we really can. So that's an area in which which my lab is actually pushing now. It's nice to think there's room for everyone. We don't have to pick one omics to rule them all. Mm, indeed. Well, I'm very grateful for both of you making the time to speak to me. For those who are interested and want to read the paper, you can click the link in the podcast description or you can go to the journal website and search for cellular and computational models in methylmalonic aciduria. All that remains is for me to say, um, Sean and Charlotte, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.